My name is Anna Grutzner, and my intention is to discuss, embody, and share my learnings in all things psychology, the human mind, mental health, and wellness. This is a platform to refresh my own knowledge and stimulate conversation before I pick up further psychology studies after completing my bachelor nine years ago. I welcome you on this journey of learning, unlearning, and relearning psychology and what it means to be in joy. Welcome to today's conversation on the psychology of OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder. We will go through the definition subtypes, diagnosis, causes, the physiology, and seeking help and treatment. In terms of the definition of OCD, it's a very complex mental health condition that affects millions of people worldwide. It's about 1 to 1.5% of the population. According to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, or the DSM-5, OCD is a mental health condition characterized by the presence of obsessions and compulsions that cause significant distress or impairment in daily functioning. The American Psychiatric Association, or the APA, previously classified OCD as an anxiety disorder up until 2013, where it was actually separated as a unique mental health condition. So OCD is really made up of two parts, the O, which is the obsessions, and the C, which is compulsions. So the obsessions are defined as recurrent and persistent thoughts, urges, or images that are intrusive and unwanted. These thoughts often cause distress, anxiety, or unease. Individuals with OCD generally recognize that their obsessions are unreasonable but they still struggle to control or dismiss them. So that's obsessions. And the C stands for compulsions. And this refers to those repetitive behaviours or mental acts that an individual feels driven to perform in response to an obsession. So these compulsions momentarily reduce distress or prevent a dreaded event or situation within that person's mind. Although... These are actually not connected in a realistic way to the event that they're meant to prevent. So these obsessions and compulsions often interfere with daily life and can lead to significant distress. The thoughts and behaviours associated with OCD can range from minor to severe in this person's life. But the DSM-5 emphasises that these behaviours consume a significant amount of time usually more than one hour per day, and they interfere with normal daily activities like work, school, relationships. So living with OCD can significantly impact a person's life, and it's very difficult for them to manage their symptoms. It's really a constant battle between their logical understanding that the obsessions are irrational and the overwhelming urge to perform those compulsions can be really mentally exhausting. So that's OCD at a very big picture, according to the DSM-5. But as with all mental health, it's very diverse, and no two people have the same version or the same symptoms that manifest for OCD. 
So some of the subtypes or different behaviors, obsessions, compulsions that might come up. Obsessions include things like contamination and cleanliness, order, symmetry, intrusive thoughts about harm, violence, relationships, sexual orientation, mental contamination, and that's where, you know, a thought, a word, or a phrase might feel bad or dangerous or uncomfortable in some way, and they're these very intrusive thoughts. Compulsions, on the other hand, are like rituals, and they often serve to temporarily alleviate the anxiety caused by those obsessions, creating a cycle that is very hard to break. Because neurons that fire together, wire together. So when we're consistently pairing a thought with an action, an obsession with a compulsion, it creates a very clear and easy neural pathway. So I have not experienced OCD myself, so take this with a grain of salt, but the way that I imagine it is that if you have a really intense urge or a really intense itch, let's say, it's the only thing that you can think about. It is all-consuming. It tends to be followed by a behavior. So in the case of an itch, you scratch the itch to feel that temporary relief. So similarly, a compulsion helps the OCD sufferer relieve their thought cycle. So that's a very oversimplified example, but at the crux, it's an uncomfortable, intrusive feeling followed by a relieving behavior. And compulsions associated with obsessions may include repetitive hand-washing, checking locks, counting, physical movements like tapping, or performing mental rituals. So I think that really shows the diversity of ways that this can show up. 90% of people with OCD actually have comorbid disorders. So this is when more than one mental health issue is experienced by that person. So the most common ones are anxiety, depression, PTSD, ADHD, and eating disorders. So it's super complex and really difficult to manage, especially where there is comorbidity, which is the case for most people experiencing OCD. To receive a formal diagnosis of OCD, these symptoms must be present for a substantial period of time, usually over two weeks, and cannot be better explained by another mental health condition. So that's a lot, but to summarize, OCD is a mental health disorder characterized by obsessions and compulsions that cause significant distress or impairment for a period of over two weeks. Symptoms are diverse and unique depending on the person experiencing it. So what actually causes someone to develop OCD? While the exact cause is still being researched, it's believed that it's a combination of genetics, neurological and environmental factors. There's also evidence suggesting that imbalances in certain brain chemicals like serotonin might contribute to the development of OCD. Things also like a traumatic past or stress may trigger the onset of this disorder in people who are already predisposed due to their genetics, their environment. As for the physiology of OCD, there are many different neural pathways involved, predominantly around abnormal communication with certain brain circuits. 
the first one being the corticostriatal thalamocortical loop. I really highly doubt I'm saying that correctly. And this loop involves various brain regions, including the prefrontal cortex, the striatum, the thalamus, and these all communicate to regulate thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. So there may be disruptions in this loop, contributing to those persistent obsessions and compulsions. Functional imaging studies also report patterns of hyperactivity in the orbitofrontal cortex, the anterior cingulate cortex, and the caudate nucleus of people with OCD. There's also neurotransmitters, and these are the little chemical messengers within our brain that allows the different parts to communicate, and this can also play a role. So I mentioned serotonin. This neurotransmitter is extensively studied in relation to OCD, and it's thought that people suffering from OCD may have low levels of serotonin, which really is the chemical or the neurotransmitter to help regulate mood, anxiety, and impulsivity. So this is why SSRIs are often prescribed. This is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, and it's a medication that helps with OCD symptoms, but it's also used for depression and other mood disorders. Other neurotransmitters involved in OCD are glutamate and GABA, which together are responsible for the balance between excitation and inhibition within the brain. So there are actually increased levels of glutamate with people with OCD, and glutamate's responsible for excitation, and there's reduced levels of GABA, which is responsible for inhibiting nerve transition. So disruptions to this GABA-glutamate balance can lead to heightened neuronal activity, potentially contributing to the repetitive thoughts and behaviours seen in OCD. Neuroimaging or brain imaging studies like fMRI, which stands for functional magnetic resonance imaging, and PET scans, which is positron emission tomography, these both reveal differences in brain activity and connectivity in people with OCD compared to those without. So they consistently demonstrate differing blood flows among people with OCD compared to controls, and the cortical and basal ganglia regions are really implicated. Essentially, these regions together are responsible for our motivation, decision-making, reward, how we experience emotion, and also in romantic interactions, learning, memory, prediction, cost-benefit calculation, conflict, monitoring our environment for errors, sensory integration, so what we hear, see, smell, taste, and touch, and modulation of physical reactions. In terms of genetics and epigenetics, this is another impact worth exploring from an OCD perspective. So genetics is what we inherit, the qualities and traits passed down from parents to children or offspring, and it's all around DNA. Epigenetics, on the other hand, is the study of how genes are influenced by the environment, and it really sheds light on how experiences and stresses can impact gene expression related to OCD. So while genetics refers to changes that alter which protein is made, 
Epigenetics refers to what impacts the expression of those genes to turn on and off. So it's important to note that OCD is polygenic, meaning it's influenced by multiple genes rather than one single gene. So different genes interact with each other and with the environment to contribute to the development of this disorder. So this complexity makes it really difficult to pinpoint exactly what underscores the development of OCD and really highlights the need for a holistic understanding and a holistic approach to healing. Another reason we know that genetics is such an important part of OCD is due to twin studies. So identical twins who share 100% of their genes are actually more likely to both have OCD if one twin is affected compared to non-identical twins. Other environmental factors within this space of epigenetics that may contribute is stress and potentially childhood traumas And there's also been links with neuroinflammation, compromised immune system, gut microbiome dibosis. So this is imbalances in the bacterial composition of the gut. And I'm really fascinated in this space. I'm actually reading a book at the moment called Gut by Julia Enders. And another really great one is Brain Changer by Felice Jacker. And this is all around the importance of food and mental health. So lots to explore there. And again, it really points to the importance of a holistic recovery for that person experiencing OCD. In terms of seeking help and treatment, the good news is that OCD is treatable and seeking help is crucial. So different methods used to treat OCD and what to expect is cognitive behavioural therapy. So this is CBT, and I speak about it a lot on here because it's used to treat a lot of different mental illnesses. And even if you don't have mental illness, it's a really useful technique. And essentially, it's the process of challenging a negative pattern of thought about the self, about the world, in order to alter an unwanted behaviour or treat mood disorders. So it's really about separating the negative thought and replacing it with one that's more conducive to a positive outcome. Another therapy used is exposure and response prevention, or ERP, and this is one of the most effective treatments for OCD. It involves gradually exposing individuals to their obsessions while preventing the associated compulsions, so really separating the O from the C in OCD. So the treatment gradually exposes people to situations designed to provoke their obsession in a safe environment. I think that's a really important part because it doesn't entirely remove the distress. It just helps them scale it back from, say, a 10 out of 10 to a 6 out of 10. So the focus is on helping individuals learn to tolerate the anxiety and to reduce their reliance on compulsive behaviours in response to that obsession. Other therapeutic interventions may include a combination of imaginal exposure, habit reversal training, talk therapy, medication, like we spoke about, SSRIs, stress reduction, regular exercise, proper sleep, meditation, and journaling. 
The list goes on and on, but I think this mindfulness element is so crucial for anyone experiencing mental illness or anyone trying to improve their mental health. So unfortunately, misconceptions and stigma really exist within the space of OCD and mental health more generally. So it's really important to spread awareness and to promote understanding. People living with OCD should be encouraged to seek help without fear of being judged. And if you know someone experiencing OCD, that empathy, that unconditional love and providing a supportive environment is really, really crucial. And if you are experiencing OCD yourself, the best place to start is with a professional, a GP, telling a trusted loved one, a family member, a friend, and seeking that help that is out there. So that is what I have for you today. 17 minutes on OCD. It's very top line about a very complex mental disorder. But we spoke about the definition, the subtypes, the diagnosis, causes, the physiology, seeking help and treatment. Thank you for joining me today. I hope that you learned something new. I hope you can approach any situations with OCD or another mental health disorder with a bit more empathy, a bit more understanding and a bit more knowledge. Have a beautiful rest of your day and I can't wait to see you back here next time.